0: And hello, and thank you for joining us for the inaugural podcast of the Health Policy Entrepreneurs. I'm Jake Plummer. I'm the host of the Health Policy Entrepreneurs, a podcast that explores the insights from entrepreneurs and health policy gurus who are passionate about making healthcare better. Every superhero begins with an origin story. The most famous, of course, is Superman's story from the doomed planet of Krypton to the friendly planet of Earth, where an ordinary man gains Superman powers by having his Kryptonian cells be exposed to the yellow sun of our planet rather than the red sun of Krypton. And that has very little to do with today's podcast, except to say (laughs) that we have an origin story of our own, which is how we got the name of this podcast and our focus. And that story begins at the University of Chicago, where one of the writers at the policy school was interviewing me for a publication and later referred to me as the policy entrepreneur. And I loved that term and hadn't heard it before, um, but realized that as much as it describes my interests of health policy and entrepreneurship, it seemed that this concept of a policy entrepreneur really describes not only me but many other people who are in the nexus space between health policy and entrepreneurship. And many of them are friends or people who I've seen who are doing great work and who are contributing to building a better health system and gaining firsthand experience on where the U.S. health system is receptive to change and where it isn't. So, this podcast is about bringing together the stories of policy entrepreneurs so we can aggregate their experiences and find patterns and insights that can be shared with policymakers, investors, healthcare leaders, and the world so we can build a responsive, affordable, and high quality US health system. Um, so, that is a good segue into our discussion today with the distinguished founders of Market Medical and with my co host. For this inaugural edition, Samaria O'Brien. So I will begin with Samaria, who is a strategy consultant in the digital space at Accenture, and who is also a board observer uh, where I am president of the board for the Online Mathematics and Science Academy uh, Foundation, and who is a partner in crime in launching this podcast series. And then I'll also move to introduce Dane, Lance, and Sharif. So, Dane uh, Guarino, CEO of Market Medical who leads business development and capital raising for market and previously was an investment banker focused in mergers and acquisitions uh, with a focus on early stage healthcare tech. And then welcome also to Lance, president, uh, who leads the tech team and drives sales and marketing for market and was previously a CEO for a different health startup. And prior to that was a senior analyst at Goldman Sachs on the regulatory capital team And then finally, to Sharif, who's joining us uh, remotely from the West Coast, who is Vice President of Strategy and leads markets programs in value based models of care. And prior to market, Sharif was a strategist for private equity firms as a part of Avalier Health's due diligence advisory group. So I should like to begin by, Sharif, uh, turning to you and, and asking you about a phrase that I think is used a lot but isn't as well-defined as as I would like, which is the phrase value-based care. I'm wondering if you could help us understand what that phrase means either broadly or specifically as it relates to the work you, Lance, and Dane are doing today.
1: Yeah, it's a really good question, Jake. So really, I think it's fair to characterize value-based care as kind of the the latest buzz term, but at its core is a kind of a, a broad umbrella um, term used to describe really any work being done in healthcare to try to tie the actual care delivered to the value of that care, and that's usually quantified by thinking about the costs and the quality of that care. Um, I think where you know where the term gets a bit overused is that it is it's really easy to define define value in a variety of ways, and um, a lot of that has to do with how you measure costs how you measure quality, right, over what duration you think about outcomes and quality. And so in our work at market, really what we're trying to do is simplify that conversation. I think sometimes what we find is people get caught up too much in the abstract of value without really taking the time to say, how do we measure value? And so really the core principles of that are cost and quality. And those are things that we're really trying to liberate at market at the point of care so that, you know, a clinician and a patient can have a real conversation about value because ultimately, I think from our perspective, value-based care really originates at the point of care with the physician-patient relationship, and defining value in whatever terms make most sense for that audience, and ultimately understand that that'll have trickle-down effects to things like total cost of care and these sort of broader um, mandates that we have as a healthcare system to reduce costs.
0: So, you know, you've said something in here that I um, I don't know if it's just me, that I feel that most of the time when I talk to hospitals now and different entrepreneurs, there's this huge focus on the user experience. And even though it kind of makes sense that that would always be part of product development, it seems like it's really core to what you guys are doing. Is that, is that sort of a fair statement that that's what makes you a little special and unique?
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, when I think about the healthcare companies, I see really succeeding at quote value-based care, And really helping bend the cost curve, the thing that all of them really have in common is that they're trying to simplify this problem, right? They're not thinking about how do we overhaul our entire healthcare system and realign all the incentives, you know, for providers or for patients or for insurers. They're really just taking it at its basic principle, which is how do we deliver the best care for people and in a way that they understand their care and can play an important role in defining their care, and if if you take that perspective, which is I think the perspective we've taken, which is people ought to understand their healthcare, they ought to understand how much it costs, they ought to understand the options available to them. The trickle down of that is that you end up having a healthcare system where we're willing to ask the tough questions about cost, quality, value, right? All these terms we talk about. And you know, the trickle down effect is really actually bending the cost curve. So it really comes down to simplifying it to if you are the patient in this sort of scenario how do you how would you want to be engaged with by the healthcare system
2: yeah sure that's really interesting would you be able to talk a little bit more about the future of price transparency in particular
1: yeah i mean i think you know we've we've seen sort of a few phases of price transparency and Dane and lance can sort of speak to this from you know when they first sort of conceived of the idea of market but we've seen these sort of phases of data liberation, right? First it was really first asking the question of, you know, how do we measure cost, right? And once we started to grapple with, you know, measuring cost in a reasonably accurate way, how do we um how do we liberate that data and make it, you know, accessible to patients and physicians? I think where we're starting to see things really evolve is um is really around making that data more actionable. So I think as a healthcare system, we've gotten pretty good at measuring cost, right? Um, I, you know, it seems really to be pretty is that good. That
0: true, at it. By the way, I mean, so that look, I'll, I mean, I, I'll take your word for it. But one of the things, you know, when I used to work in um, hospital systems, which is nearly, I guess, probably a decade ago now. But when I was working there directly, it seemed like people were often baffled about really understanding what our costs were. Is that has that dramatically changed in your view?
3: And and I think it so, might be helpful to distinguish yeah. between cost and price. Okay, in this conversation, fair. right? Where cost is, you know, the the actual materials and labor and and so on and so forth that go into providing care, mm-hmm. and as opposed to price, which is that's what the patient and or the insurance or the combination of the two uh, would end up, you know, remitting to the provider for the provision of that care.
0: So, in so yeah. which way did you did you mean it in cost or price?
3: Yeah. So I'm
1: really thinking about price, but the way I think about it is from a system perspective, where Ultimately, cost to the system, but I think Lance's point is very well taken. That for the average consumer, that is really price, not cost, right? Um, it really depends on sort of your perspective. But so I think it's a valid point, Jake, in that at the provider level, right, on the ground delivering healthcare, we aren't very good about distinguishing between cost and price, and where I think um, we're, you know, and linking those two, right? So. you know, your experience in a hospital setting is valid in that I don't think, you know, day to day people have a really good grasp of cost, price, and then, you know, by by sort of virtue of those two things, sort of profitability, right? Um, When I think about our system as a whole, I think we are getting much better at measuring price in that really, if you want to take it down to its basic, um, sort of basic building block, it is, It is what is submitted on an insurance claim and what is ultimately paid out from that claim. We've gotten, I think, much better at measuring that dollar amount. Where things get really complicated is when you think about total cost of care and episodic cost of care, meaning thinking about a specific disease state and the cost of that disease state, because you introduce a new element in that, which is time, right? And time, it it can be hard to define time on on, uh, on health status, if you will. Um, where I think where where we're really trying to focus is on, to your point, making that information actionable at the point of care. That is still where we really aren't succeeding as a system. Insurers have gotten very good at, you know, I think I I should say better at measuring, you know, price and ultimately what money is coming going out the door, uh, and sort of organizing that data in such a way that it becomes reasonably usable. But ultimately, that that information hasn't trickled down to the physician and the patient in a way that's actually actionable and that's where we're really focused right
0: so let me ask a question just as i'm thinking about other uh groups that have tried to succeed in price transparency and what it is that you are experiencing i think which is trying to really think about the user and really getting into the um the 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 site you know and the the point of care um, I think of some companies like Freesia, and if it's still allowed to use a reference to outcome health, uh, <laughs> as companies that really were trying to get you know into the clinic and, and in front of patients. What have you learned that has made you successful in doing that when that is so hard usually for people to do? So I think, yeah, Lance, do you want to take this one?
3: Yeah. Yeah. So at the end of the day, and I know, you know, regulation is something we're probably going to end up talking about a fair amount today, but you know, regulation is the daily fact of life for a healthcare provider and um, regulation as in general, we can talk about specific regulations, but regulation in general brings a tremendous amount Of overhead to a physician's office and so when I look at companies like I'll just use ourselves plus the two you've named market medical freesia and outcome health in every single case our entry point to the physician is to say you have a lot that you're trying to do on top of providing care to your patients why don't you let us take some of that administrative burden off of your shoulders and and off of the kind of the plate of your staff uh, let us automate, or you know, just handle those things entirely. And in return, you know, either you know, some companies make revenue for that. You know, the the doctor will pay them, or the healthcare provider will pay them for that. Or in our, you know, in our case, we we sort of broker a trade where we take some some work off their hands, and and in return, we get a chance to interact with a patient in a meaningful way.
0: And so, being tactical about it, though, if you were thinking about how hard is it to get in and sort of inject yourself into that workflow on a scale from one to 10 and with 10 being very hard and one being, um, extremely easy. Where would you, where would you peg that?
3: Yeah. So, uh, the joke I always make, especially when we're talking to our investors is, uh, we're not selling email marketing to dry cleaners, right? This is like, you know, we need multiple touch points with a physician practice. Uh, We need FaceTime with the doctor. We need FaceTime with the office manager. We need FaceTime with referral coordinators. And, you know, multiple times with each of these people explaining what we do and how we do it, demoing the software, walking them through it, answering their questions, even though, you know, from our perspective, what we're, what we're doing in the interface we have with, with these physician practices is really very simple, Um, they have so much they're trying to do and there's so little, uh, like workflow productivity that exists in a doctor's office that, uh, you're, you, you literally, you almost have to sort of take a little bit of a custom approach with each practice. The software, Mm -hmm. in our case, the software works the same, but every doctor's office functions Mm -hmm. a little differently. So it doesn't sound like a one it's, yeah. a, it's a 10. <laughs> it's a ten. It's like twelve point five.
2: And going along with that, is there like an ideal or target customer you all have in mind usually?
3: Yeah. So, I'll maybe take the question up one level and say strategically, how do you how do you attack an industry like healthcare? Um, the advice that I would give to startups um, is to recognize that, um, you know. I think this is, uh, I'm trying to remember who's, who did this, I, uh, who said this first, but you can hunt rabbits, deer, or elephants. Elephants may take you too long to to get, and though there's a lot of meat on the, on an elephant, you know, proverbially, you also might not, as a startup, be able to consume all of that, right? And so that might be a waste. Rabbits are fast and hard to catch, and there's not a lot of meat, so you want to kind of go for deer, right? Sort of a morbid analogy, but now that I'm in it, I'm going to stick with it. Uh, and so I think the, the key is that you got to figure out with what you're trying to do with your, you know, sort of with your respective solution, who are, who are the deer in your, in your space. And for us, that's physician practices that have between, you know, five and 10, uh, you know, practicing clinicians, uh, in the office.
0: So I was going to ask when I was thinking about some of the, um, challenges that you've had, and actually a lot of the success that you've had in getting attention, I was thinking about the attention that you've gained from some payers, some health insurance companies. And I do want to ask about that because I think that that is such a coveted relationship by a lot of entrepreneurs going into the space. But then I also, so if you could talk about that, would be great. But I, I'd also then like to get a sense of how are you getting attention from that uh, from that core audience you just described to the five to 10 doc practices.
3: Yeah. Um, so I'll just give a shout out to Dane and then he can blush and defend himself. But, uh, you know, in our case, Dane is incredibly good at, at networking. Um, we're fortunate enough to have kind of met each other at the University of Chicago and through professors and other people kind of around the university, we were able to network our way into a lot of really interesting conversations. So Dane gets a a huge portion of the credit. And he's also one of the most soft-spoken
0: effective (laughs) networkers. He actually said when we were preparing for this, he said, this may be the only thing that you hear me saying because I usually only talk about ten percent of the conversation. So if you can have a reputation of being a master networker who never talks, I I think that that actually may be the skill that everybody wants to learn a little bit more about. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to happy to teach that class. That's totally fine with that.
3: <laughs> it's Yoda. It's Yoda level networking. Uh, the other thing I would say is that you know. But wait, I'm, so what what, well, did, what
0: did what did Dane do? There, so you're saying that. that you know, can, can I refer to any of the payers by name, or are they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So ahead. you won a competition, right? With it was it Signa that you won the competition with?
3: Yeah. Okay. Was Dane? Does Dane get the lion's share of that credit, or that's know. probably the one where he doesn't get as much as much credit? Uh, well, it depends
4: on how are g- how we're, how
3: we're <laughs> granting the credit.
4: I mean, I, I found the opportunity. I didn't do the pitch that won the that won the competition. Lance, Lance did that. Lance delivered the goods there. Uh, That's true. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's true. But
0: but Lance was the pitch man and he, he brought it home. Okay. Well tell me a little bit more about that one. What, what happened and how did it, and has it helped? I'm really curious about if these pitch competitions actually help, um, Uh, you know, reveal new opportunities, both from the payer and from the startups and if they can be improved or if everybody's doing just a great job with the way they are designed today. It's kind of what I'm, I'm interested a little bit from your experience.
3: Yeah. Uh, So the value of pitch competitions is a, that's a tough topic. Uh, And depending on the day, I might have a different opinion. We've done a lot of those. We were lucky that our very first one was this one that Cigna put on and and we won that competition. And um, I think even though we were at a very early stage as a company, we had really addressed sort of the pinpoint issue that could make a difference for an entity like Cigna. And um, so, you know, one of the comments that we got sort of informal feedback was, look, we've never seen anybody approach this problem in this way before. And, um, you know, startups are all about execution. You know, it's not about the idea as much as it is about how you can sort of, Execute on the idea. But in this case, we really did bring a sort of a novel approach and that's what got Cigna's interest
4: Yeah, I think I think a lot, the mistake a lot of folks made at that competition was they were trying to beautify something that Cigna already did and and You know, Cigna was kind of like well, we already have that, you know, why do we need? Why do we need Yeah, you guys to make it slightly better if at all better um, and Yeah, what they were looking for was was a way to to actually engage um, you know their members and patients more successfully uh, on specific problems and and we had kind of found a way that we thought we could be successful being um, being more successful getting patients and members to do stuff and look at stuff.
0: So what did you um, what did you learn if you were going to give any suggestions to somebody else going through that process of doing a pitch and then turning it into you know, a viable client, um, what
3: insight would you have? Well, I mean, the, the pitch is like the pitch is the moment, right. Um, you know, the, the pitch is kind of the, the culmination of what between Dane and I had to have been, you know, years, you know, maybe almost a decade of really hard work in the industry and in the space, right. Especially in healthcare and in any technical highly regulated field, right, you got to know your stuff. You have to understand, in in this particular instance, how an insurance company works, what it's looking for, why it's deployed the programs it's deployed, and where those programs are starting to fall short. In our case, there was a very simple and obvious piece of behavioral economics that was basically being ignored. And we said, you know, there's a very simple solution to this. You're not going to like hearing it because it requires a bit of hard work. To deploy this said solution which is why we target small physician practices back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago Um, but we were sort of willing to pitch that and put that forward and make a compelling case for for why the insurance companies should should do something differently
0: let me ask then After you succeed and you get their interest and it doesn't have to be Cigna though. I was thinking about Cigna, but you know, I think that whether it's a health system or it's insurance company, or maybe this is true, even in the pharma space, this industry does have a lot of regulation, broadly speaking, small company uh, trying to fit into the regulatory requirements of working with a larger company. How has that worked out?
3: So I'm going to, do you, do, you, do you want
0: to go first? Sure. Okay. I mean, it's
4: it's a hilariously silly process. Um, so Cigna sent us a, just a, a security review document that had, I think, 300, 300 questions, and each one had, it seemed like, 100 different permutations for for what we needed to check the box for in terms of making sure that we could uh, contain the data in the right way and protect it, and weren't breaking any rules in any sort of way, and so that was just awe-inspiring in terms of how we were going to answer that and how we were going to feel confident that we could we could do the things that we were saying we could do, and so <clears throat> that required a, you know a few months of of making sure we had the right sort of legal counsel around the table. Uh, we now we do, and and that that was really helpful and. Uh, making sure we had the right sort of tech team put together um, that could really think about security. It wasn't just, um, you know, building data assets and and building technology that consumers would engage with and that physicians would actually utilize. It's also, you know, making sure you have the security necessary to to, right to get this huge entity comfortable with you. And that was, that was pretty terrifying at first. And, and we, we made it through it and it was, it was hard. It took us a long time, but uh, uh, certainly was worth it. But, was terrifying
3: so i think the the far extremes of this issue get overplayed so number one i think a lot of the regulation is warranted but the big companies hide behind it Um, they sort of use it as a moat to fend off competition from up and coming players in the industry uh hipaa in particular i think that happens a lot And so to the entrepreneur, I would say, don't be intimidated by that. Absolutely do not be intimidated. You can be HIPAA compliant as an early stage pre-revenue healthcare technology company. It will require a bit of homework, right? It will, but the tools are there and they, these tools didn't necessarily exist five years ago. That's what's exciting about what's happening. What tools, what tools are they? Um, So I think, you know, my time might not be, might not be perfect, but you know, around five years ago, we start to see. Uh, HIPAA compliant shared sort of hosting space, right? That's probably kind of the single biggest uh, cog in the in the wheel uh, that, that came to be. But now we're seeing other things like um, EMR interoperability players that make integrating a lot easier. And a lot of the big electronic medical record companies have developer programs, right? So, you know, the ability to get the data that you need or at least to connect up, Is much easier now than it ever has been. You know, by, you know, by many orders of magnitude, I would say.
4: Yeah, and like HIPAA compliant text messaging, uh, HIPAA compliant email stuff, like that stuff's become a lot easier uh, more recently. So,
0: what about you? Said something about finding the right tech team, finding the right legal uh, support. Easy thing to do? Challenging?
3: Uh, No, Uh, we've definitely had our missteps along the way. Uh, One was using a a really great lawyer on business and employment law and those sorts of things to take a first crack at a at a healthcare specific contract and that didn't go so well we learned from that one so i would say you know as as a startup it's interesting um, you, you as a startup you probably shouldn't have a super high tolerance for working with other startups and that could be that could mean you know other small companies it could also mean you know, I've had a few people approach me and say, hey, I've never done much in the healthcare space. I'm a lawyer, but I would like to learn healthcare law. I'll do your legal stuff for really cheap because I'm learning it as I go. And that has never worked out, right? The day we found the guy who had been a healthcare data attorney for a really long time and worked for all the big names in the industry was the day that our legal troubles kind of like went away. Uh, And, you know, you'll pay for it. But, uh, you know, those sorts of folks are worth every dime that you pay.
4: Yeah, and tech talent is tech talent's hard to find too in healthcare. Um, you know, there's not been a bunch of mature healthcare technology companies outside of EMR, and I don't see EMR needing, you know, really advanced uh dev talent. So you're you're finding talented folks who've worked outside of healthcare, uh typically and and training them up on on healthcare. We found we found a guy in the hedge fund space who is incredible at um data science and at security. And then um yeah, I mean, that stuff, yeah, none of it's easy, uh, unfortunately, um, but vital.
0: Yeah, but it's, it sounds like you have identified, at least with your comment about the legal you know, uh, talent, that is sort of a, a pattern, a way to save time. If you were going to do it again, you would have from the very beginning, knowing what you know now, said, hey, you know, there's really no easy savings here. I need to go for that talent from the beginning.
3: Yeah, I would say that, especially on the legal side. Well, then
0: how does that translate into sales? They say that founders should always be the best salespeople for their new emerging company. Is that true in your experience? Or is it given the complexity of getting into these doc clinics and such, is it possible to find somebody who's just done it a lot before and you can give them a new product and they'll be successful? What's your view on that?
3: yeah so for our business right at the same time we're selling physicians, small independent physician practices, and we're selling to insurance companies and um yeah, no one has touched the insurance company sales except for dane um, like it would just it would be impossible for anyone else to to do that why is that
4: i mean it's all it's all relationship german right it's it's finding a million different people at each insurer that might understand your problem and might be willing to pick up the you know pick up the baton or the torch and run with it and and really help you internally. That's that's constantly what you're looking for at a payer, and so it's just building individual relationships at, at every single one.
0: So how do you get started? I mean, right now I'm doing some consulting work for a company that is really strong in the payer space, mm-hmm. and I have loved that uh, component of meeting people because they're so Data driven. They're really frank. At least maybe there's just exceptionally good relationships that this the company has right now. But I feel that people are are very uh, specific about understanding their return on investment and their investment theses and why they're getting involved. But you know these organizations seem so big, Mm -hmm. and so how how do you go about trying to figure out who the right person is? I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn, uh,
4: and I spend a lot of time asking. Smart people that we end up meeting, hey, who's pretty progressive in the payer space that you've met or you know you've had the chance to listen to at a at a conference or something like that? Uh, can and can you introduce me to them? Right? Can I get a conversation started with them? That's been it's been one of my go tos. I spend yeah a lot of time on LinkedIn fishing for folks who um, look like they have the right sort of background and seem approachable. Like they're not they're not in the C suite. They're more you know, trying to make a name for themselves at you know, they're they've got growth aspirations, they're kind of in the middle level. They seem like they might have access to some budget or at least a sense of how to scope something. Um, and then uh try to get an introduction to them, right? Try and um, you know, find one of my connections that's met them and ideally, you know, get an introduction that way and and you know come up with a thoughtful sort of introductory uh kind of conversation piece that you want to talk to them about and hopefully that you know that that hooks their attention and their interest and you kind of go from there and uh you know if things really take off you you know you start talking about their problems and what they're trying to solve and whether where you might kind of overlap in terms of fit and and then um you know create the the smallest sort of project scoping that you feel like they can digest and and kind of see if they can run with it
0: when you are getting them excited i'm going to kind of move this into the conversation of raising money and staying afloat. Every investor that I've met loves the concept of traction, and they also love the concept of somebody else moving first. Um, And so I'm wondering if insurance companies feel the same way, if if they uh, are more motivated to engage, if they feel that you, that somebody else in the space has moved first or are you able to find some, some sort of first movers, um, in the insurance client area? Yeah,
4: I think the, there's a, there's certainly an analogy, uh, at least Midwest investors to, um, Midwest VCs to, to the payer kind of conservative mentality and preferring to be, they don't want to be first. They definitely don't want to be last. They want to be second. Um,
0: and I Too think people don't run races with that. <laughs> you know, with that aspiration, right? I, I, run, like, I run races sometimes yeah. with that aspiration.
4: <laughs> with my wife, at least. Okay. Um, but uh, there are, so there are certain dynamics where um, I'd say some of the payers, some of the payers would prefer to think of themselves in, in their own kind of little sphere and would prefer to only think about doing stuff by themselves. And so if there's another payer that's working with us then it actually it hurts our chances at getting business with them, uh, at least in kind of the current environment. Oh um, wait, say that
0: again. So you could have it could hurt your chances yeah, to work with one or Yeah, There are a already, few. Okay,
4: um, and I mean the big one that you you consistently hear about that about is is United Healthcare. They prefer to keep everything solo, and they like to do their own stuff. Um, and so you know that provides a challenge. But I'd say the majority of other payers are actually very open to, to a multi payer platform and and the question of exclusivity doesn't come up as much. And so um, I'd say the, the analogy, you know, the comparison to, to VCs is pretty, is pretty apt, right? And so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's certainly a little bit of, of, you know, trying to convince all the payers that you're working with all the other payers so that they can move faster and, and see if that's productive.
0: Interesting. So, so now let's just talk about raising money. What is it? You guys have raised money. We have. And what is it that put, um, put you over the line in, in terms of being evaluated by many and then somebody deciding, hey, we're actually going to write a check? Or is it any one thing?
3: Well, I think about the question you asked just a minute ago, Jake. Uh, you know, everyone else wants to see someone else as the first mover. Um, and I don't know, my comment to other healthcare entrepreneurs would be, you have to be the first mover and you have to be so compelling (laughs) in what you're doing. And part of that just means being completely self convicted, right? Fully bought in, right? Investors actually get a pretty good sense of who's really bought in and they can, they can ferret that out pretty quickly. And so I would say, especially in the early stage of fundraising, like you are selling yourself, you're selling what you can do with, you know, a few hundred dollars and your, you know, your weekend time, you know, at the very earliest stages of developing an idea. Right. Um, and that's how you're going to get, you know, maybe an angel investor to give you a few thousand dollars to spend that and a few more weekends and like make something grow, you know, and if you can start that, get the flywheel turning that way, then there's really, you know, you're, you're the one that kind of forces the wheel to turn. Um, if you as an entrepreneur sit around thinking and anyone else is going to like jump in and help push like you're just you're gonna wait for a long time
0: well speaking of waiting for a long time we all went through a pretty memorable presidential election just about a year or two years ago I guess and you know with this concept of um, always thinking about how to improve our system asked this in a uh, provocative way you can take it wherever you'd like What would, if you had 15 minutes with Donald Trump and you said, uh, this is an opportunity to get some healthcare reform that would help the goal of price transparency and advancing the user and person's ability to understand the health costs in front of them. What could the president do?
1: I can start this one out guys. If he is like, yeah. So I think, you know, um, I think the biggest issue that plagues our healthcare system today, from a policy perspective, is uncertainty. And you know, for a company like us, for entrepreneurs, um, uncertainty creates opportunity certainly, but prolonged uncertainty really uh, freezes the system. And I think that's really what we've entered: is a prolonged period of uncertainty around policy, around regulation, um, around sort of systemic structure that. Um, has caused a couple of things that I think are detrimental in the long term. One is an aggressive amount of consolidation really at every level of the industry that only seeks to reduce competition and increase prices for consumers. Um, And also I think a a slowdown in innovation um, from those in a position to act um, in large part sort of uh, to weather the storm of uncertainty. And so if if I could impart one thing, I think it would be that, um, you know, determine deciding on a path forward for our system, even a short-term path, and providing the, the framework such that really all levels of the industry can, can act upon that, I think is key. You know, one of the, the struggles I think we've seen, especially over the last six to 12 months, is um, in part sort of um, the dismantling of, you know, provisions of the Affordable Care Act, but also in just the, uh, you know, the uncertainty that things like the Accountable Care Organization program have seen. Um, and, uh, you know, taking, for example, mandatory programs and making them voluntary or, uh, you know, uh, signaling that penalties for certain, you know, inaction may, may be foregone, those things only seek to sort of slow down the system in progress. And so I think, um, you know, that ultimately has, I think created a bit of stagnation over the last 12 to 18 months. And in, uh, in terms of just how we, the system progresses and understanding that there is no perfect solution for reforming our healthcare system, but what we need more than anything is a path forward.
3: I would just echo Sharif's point about uh, antitrust. I think the biggest problem we have in healthcare is just rampant consolidation. And I think that the Department of Justice needs to be taking a much closer look at hospitals buying physician groups, especially large ones. Um, And then also at the vertical integration that the payers are sort of all trying to go through right now. Um, I think there are serious, serious risks with allowing that to happen. And a a system that has smaller, more competitive firms is going to do a lot better for the end consumer.
0: So uh, let me... Were you going to weigh in on that? Well, I was just going to say um, I'm,
4: I'm no Trump supporter by any stretch of any imagination, but I think he's he's actually really good at breaking um, up what are kind of like these these weird industry um, problems. He seems to like go at them and sometimes is successful at kind of uh, turning them over. And there certainly are a bunch of really entrenched um Opportunities like that in healthcare that I think I think he could go after that that I think he is going after to some extent. The
3: pharma pricing thing. His his war on pharmaceutical pricing I think is a good one. Is he tact like from a tactical standpoint doing it all like exactly right? I I don't know, but uh, at least I think the the thrust is correct.
0: Awesome. Well, you you guys all touched on a bunch of things that I want to go in depth in, but I almost spend too much time in it. But I do want to ask. So the. The consolidation, all right, which Sharif spoke about, which you just spoke about, with a, with your background in MA, what is it if you have a view, what is it that's that's driving this consolidation and is it something that you think that it will that the trends will support continuing?
4: Yeah, I think I think Sharif made a really good point that uncertainty is a big one. I think that in healthcare, getting bigger has resulted in more power and that's, that's been the winner historically. And so I think that's been the standard playbook. And so, yeah, can, can the Trump administration's policies kind of upset that that's the, you know, the momentum that's going towards that and, and get rid of the the incentives to, you know, continue to get bigger. And that's how you get better pricing. And that's how, um, you know, the, you get um you know better relationships with or better better sales relationships and better you know profitability and everything i don't i just i don't think that's actually what happens um ultimately if you know as that continues i think it just results in a in a healthcare ecosystem that's really inefficient and so um you know i prefer that we can cut that off but
3: um
0: yeah what is the what, what's the vertical integration of the payers that you referred to
3: yeah. Uh, Shreef will definitely know more about me, uh, more than I will about this. But uh, So payers are buying other service providers, right? So it's funny, we talk about health insurance companies and at the highest level, we tend to think of them as like financial entities. Oh, they're going to underwrite my health insurance plan. But um, health insurance companies predominantly make their money on other types of services, care management in specific. It specifically, is the, is a big one for them, and so as we see, you know, health insurance companies buy things like pharmaceutical benefits managers, which you know that you should have an hour long podcast just on PBMs at some point, Jake, because it'd be a fascinating topic for maybe three percent of healthcare interested people, but which is huge numbers actually, yeah, yeah, based but, on, <laughs> but a, but a PBM makes money coming and going. And it's unclear, right? They're supposed to lower costs for some people. They're supposed to raise costs for other people. And it's it's an enormous black box. And for an insurance company where most people already don't know how they work, to vertically integrate into like additional care management services like pharmaceutical benefits management um, is a little bit of a scary thing because they start to control the entire pipeline. And sorry to bring in your last question again, but like, you know, there are really perverse incentives in the legislation that's been passed around this where an insurance company doesn't necessarily have an incentive to keep costs low, right? Financially, you tend to think of a health insurance company as being financially aligned with the patient, right? Uh, But that's not the case the way the Affordable Care Act was actually written. And so when you get more vertical integration, then those companies have more power to control prices, um, and it's harder to tell how they're how they're affecting the system because they just they control so much of it. Sharif, please correct me. I'm happy to be wrong if it's you that's telling me I'm wrong.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think to some extent, I, th- I actually think Lance, this has very little to do with the Affordable Care Act and, and much more to do with um, as a healthcare system. I think one thing we've neglected for for really decades is the fact that uh, ultimately the person can responsible for controlling cost of care is, is actually, you know, the HR department at a large employer. And I think, uh, the fact that we as we've only recently come to recognize that as a healthcare system is, uh, emblematic of sort of the, the slow progress towards cost containment that we've seen. Um, and you know, so if I, if I sort of go back to your original question, Jake, which was, um, you know, how do you think about things like value-based care? The entities you see succeeding in that world, to some extent, many of them have, have been succeeding in that world long before there was, you know, something called health reform and the Affordable Care Act, in large part because they had aligned financial incentives across the system, right? So I think about programs like Medicare Advantage that you know, for for years now have, have shown that, you know, when when you take an active role in cost containment, you can you can do really interesting things while still, in many cases, providing really great quality of care. Um, and so I think that really is uh, that's really key to it, right? Is that um, we do a really poor job. There are, uh, I think, Dean, you pointed this out. There are a ton of intermediaries in our healthcare system, some good, some bad. But ultimately, we do a really poor job of understanding the incentives of each of those intermediaries. And once you start to really you know, parse that apart, you can understand why cost containment in healthcare has been very difficult because often those with the most ability to act either don't know that they have the ability to act or worse have a vested interest in not acting because they stand to profit from it, right?
3: Sharif, do you think it's fair to say that the... Um, the sort of large number of intermediaries in healthcare is a function of the fact that most healthcare spend or about half of the healthcare spend in the country is, you know, rooted in the HR department of a large company? You know, I, no, I think it
1: comes down to we're talking about an industry that makes up almost 20% of GDP, right? It's natural that it is, I think, you know, far more complex than maybe any of us really give it credit. And so, there is a, behind the scenes, there are a huge number of factors um, and and operations that have to occur for the system to function. Um, I, you know, I, when you brought up the pharmacy benefit manager space, it really got me thinking about this, because I think um, one of, you know, one of the things that always um, surprised me when I started to dig into the pharmacy channel is that um, it's it is truly one of these areas where there are, a, you know dozens of intermediaries and each sort of profiting on their portion of the of the supply chain in such a way that when you aggregate out to total cost of care sort of explains sort of why we are in the position we are in um, but you know ultimately you think about it and I think one of the things that's always surprised me is um, you see a lot of startups sort of talk about disrupting the insurance industry disrupting the insurers in particular and I think oftentimes that uh, those statements come with a bit of, uh, you know, naivety around the complexity involved with administering a healthcare benefit, right? There is a lot that goes into that. And the, the sooner you realize that the the more you understand why the system has sort of bloated in the way it has.
0: I feel that there is, um, a lot that could be done in the, to reduce the consolidation, you know, of, um, uh, of these health systems. And I think that what you're describing, I think people are even kind of referring to it as sort of like this pay Uh, is that the term? Have you heard that term? No, for, I'm not familiar. Yeah, with that it, It's kind of like combining payer with provider and to, to call it a pay And I think that okay. that's, yeah. that's kind of what you're referring to. And I, I can't help but think that what you're trying to do, the core essence of being in this price transparency era is, um, is aided perhaps by the payvider movement because all of the payers, m- at least, are more likely than health systems to want to try to drive down their spend, but may be harmed by the consolidation in the provider movement because they uh, will have very little reason to compete on price and so if you're not going to compete on price why make your price known or understood or transparent is that do those summary statements sort of track with how you three feel about this
3: so so for me yes and no um yeah i think the payvider sort of comment is an important one right because that actually shifts the conversation from price back to cost Back to one of our earlier points right okay. if, if i'm a provider and i'm gonna get x thousand dollars to take care of lance larson this year i want to make sure that i take care of him adequately but for the lowest cost to me as the provider possible and now we have hospitals and this is true and it's been they've been doing this longer in california where this model has been more readily adopted for a longer period of time we have, where you have provider networks that are actually looking at and figuring out how to really account for the cost of providing care. Whereas um, outside of California where this model doesn't have as much traction, providers are really all about maximizing their billing to an insurance company and, and to a patient population. So I, I do completely sort of uh, agree with you there. Uh, on sort of how what this does to insurance companies, it's, it's just such a, it's such a tough and tricky thing to unpack. Um, i think i think insurance companies should be incredibly threatened and should you know be trying to think really carefully about the payvider model as it grows because eventually there there should be i think a tech platform that that kind of disaggregates the payers in some way. Now this may be a long ways off. We may be looking pretty far in the future here, but if the, if the pay provider is taking the financial risk and they're providing the care and more and more it seems like insurance companies are looking to offload care management to good, strong healthcare providers, uh, what do you need a payer for? Interesting.
4: So it, yeah, and you yeah. had a question on transparency and whether these payviders are incentivized in certain markets where there's a lot of consolidation to be transparent on pricing. Is that what you were well if the providers which I which could include a
2: provider, mm. I suppose. Yeah. yeah.
4: Yeah. And so our our sell there uh, is more the, so you're seeing a lot of these providers who are consolidating getting into issues as high deductible health plans continue to grow. You get into um, those in the middle class all of a sudden can't afford to pay for their health care. And so you see, you know, the traditional bread and butter revenue source for these large providers, you know, all of a sudden start to show up in bad debt, right? And they're not collecting on, on these claims. Um, and so, the opportunity for transparency is interesting there because it, if you give patients an understanding of what things will cost ahead of time before they go and get that procedure, they can make more intelligent decisions about whether they truly need to get it, one, and two, they have an understanding for what it costs ahead of time so they can prepare their budget and their financial budget so that they can afford it. And they can also look at, you know, opportunities to, to you know, get healthcare lending uh, or something like that or, you know, what they're going to cut back on, you know, to, to make sure that they can get it done. So. Um, you know, the, the, the benefits of being transparent ahead of time lead to, you know, much lower, um, bad debt later on
0: and, and a smoothing of that. So I, I want to do, um, sometime sort of a deep dive into this high deductible care market segment, because it, it just seems like, gosh, it's such a big group of people. They're all price sensitive. They're all fairly healthy and it seems like the sort of consumer movement in healthcare could really get largely juiced just by focusing on them. So let me ask you, I mean, it, we'll do, we'll do a quick part of question on that. And then I want to turn to, um, something a little bit more, uh, I want to get your advice on, on some things, but is that, does that track when you, when you think, cause we want more people to be using the market medical solution. So does is is that a core user group of yours? Do you think the high deductible patient, or is it, you know, I, I realize it could be anybody who's looking for a medical service, but is that group
3: especially attractive to you, or is it not? I think so. From the perspective of you know, they're going to have sort of a marquee result of using Market Medical. Someone with a high deductible plan. <clears throat> who is referred for a very expensive imaging test by their physician could save thousands of dollars by using market medical thousands of
0: dollars, meaning 2000 meaning what does it mean?
3: Yeah. I mean, we've seen $2,500 out of pocket savings for, for folks who have a high deductible plan. Most of the cost of the test is coming out of their pocket and we can show them here are five providers who can get the test your doctor has referred you for. And one costs, Three grand, and another costs six hundred bucks.
0: Wow! So, if you have a high deductible plan, you should be doing what? You should be seeking
3: out somebody that's using Market Medical today. You should be yeah. So, you should be. Our our solution is deployed at physician offices, and so uh, you should either find a primary care physician that is a user of the Market Medical platform, or you should uh, chat with your doctor about joining Market Medical. Uh, so that he or she can show you that pricing information proactively when referring you out.
0: That's true. And and maybe there's not a way to do this. Is there a way to actually say okay well i'm in chicago this is the doctor i should go to if i want to be able to take advantage of market medical or is it just luck of the draw
3: or yeah yeah so we're about to post the list of physicians who use market medical on our website so that's uh that's coming soon And, and that's a list that we will keep and and continue to update over time so that when people are are looking for a new doctor they can take that into account when selecting selecting their primary care doctor and we
0: should put a link to that in the show notes as well absolutely absolutely let me ask this is be a, sort of a closeout question. And I'm going to keep it general, but then maybe we can ask, you know, sort of a follow up if it makes sense. And it just has to do with what is the, I'm almost tempted to ask, what's the worst advice that you've gotten in entering into building a business in this space? Uh, but if you feel like being maybe more constructive, you could you could opt to, You could opt to answer what has been the advice that you would be most likely to pass on or have already passed on to other entrepreneurs uh, that you've talked to.
4: Man. Well, I think when, I think in healthcare, or really any startup it's it's identifying. A problem worth solving for. I mean, for any startup, for anything worth worth building as a startup, it's it's finding a problem worth worth solving for and then piecing together what the bare minimum sort of questions are and and problems and just finding solutions for them, right? And just piecing them together and realizing that it's not one giant bite of the apple you're taking, it's a ton of tiny, tiny little Nibbles that ultimately get you there right and it's just one logic puzzle after another that you're really gonna just have to like Bunker down for and and solve solve your way through them and and network like crazy to find people smart um, To either, you know advise you mentor you or work with you who can help you solve more of these really tough puzzles
3: Yeah, that's really great Uh, the one thing that I always think about is the um, what's called the Stockdale paradox I get this from a Jim Collins book called Good to Great. And he talks about um, uh, a, a guy by the name of Admiral James Stockdale who was in a really horrible position. And the, basically the, the learning was, you know, you confront the brutal facts of reality as, as clear-eyed, in as clear-eyed a way as you possibly can. Um, but then, on the flip side of that coin, like you just have to decide that you're fully committed to to the mission to whatever you're trying to accomplish. Because, especially in something like healthcare, where it is complex and difficult, and and you know you're gonna feel like you just got buried by a tsunami of bad news, you know, every other week. You know, you have to you have to be able to go through that experience and say, okay, what did I learn from that? What are the realities that I didn't understand about this industry that I now clearly understand, and how does that change my game plan? But it should never be a question whether or not there is a game plan, right? That's what I would. That's what I would say.
1: As, along those lines, I think um, you know it's easy to. I, I agree that conviction is important. But I think it's a matter of what you have conviction in, right? So um, don't be so naive to believe that you have the perfect solution to a problem, but you should certainly have the conviction to say, you know, there is a healthcare system we ought to have. And, or, you know, in our case, our, as a company, right, everyone who works at market, our fundamental view is that we as patients ought to understand how much our healthcare costs before we receive our care. And um, every conversation we have, whether it's with a provider or with an insurer or with an advocacy group or with a patient, right, hones how we approach that problem. But our conviction is, you know, it it remains the same. But to think that the solution, you know, there is one solution to that problem is naive. You need to, I think, be willing and able to adapt because ultimately, um, you know, you need patients and physicians and insurers and all these different players in the ecosystem to come to some sort of agreement as to how to push, you know, push in the right direction. And some of that is just sheer force of will, right? But some of that is also just listening, right? And understanding, you know, every stakeholder, I think most people who go into healthcare as a career are are doing so because they genuinely want to improve care you know, over the years or depending on your perspective, that may look differently. But I think as as you understand that and come you know sort of take that as a given, then you can really approach every conversation to listen to that specific stakeholder and find, you know, that common ground that you can sort of build amongst the group.
0: Thanks, Sharif. Yeah, I, I think, you know, this when you were just talking about how important it is to have an ecosystem, I would go completely off um a list of relevant comments to share this one with you, which is that when I was, we were launching once a new, um, part of our healthcare clinic to expand the number of Mohs surgeries that we wanted to do. And if you're familiar with the Mohs surgery, it's done a lot for patients that, that need to have, um, that usually have a, a, a cancer on their face that needs to be removed and you need to be very, you know, you want to remove the absolute minimum amount of tissue. So it's, you're very highly skilled in reconstructive um, surgery. And the government pays uh, handsomely for it, and so the hospital that we were working with said, "Oh, we really want you to grow the Mohs practice." And so we were we were sitting and we were talking to the chairman of medicine, who wasn't a dermatologist, and he said, "Well, you know, we how can we uh, expand a lot of your patients and get a greater proportion of them to be in Mose?" and And we said, "Well, you know, it just doesn't work like that. You have to see a lot of." Uh, just regular general dermatology patients, and then you'll find the most patients. And he said, "Ah, I don't, I don't like that because those regular derm patients, they they don't pay as well. You know, we just want the the most patients. Those are the ones that are lucrative." And my my boss was the the chief of dermatology. You know, turned to me afterwards when we were walking, and he said, "You know, Jake, it's like somebody saying that they only want tigers in the jungle." you know, and all the other animals are boring and all the other plants are just like, you know, not exciting and really what we just need are tigers, you know, and, <laughs> and so I think about that, you know, and sort of appreciating this, this ecosystem, uh, comment Sharif that you just made. So I'm going to now turn it to Samaria uh, with an exit question. And this is going to be to capture your, um, your insights. They say that all great, this is really putting you on the spot, by the way. Um, and so the all great leaders are supposed to be according to the Blinkist uh, recommendations that I that I get, uh, being you know consume lots of stimulating uh, written materials. So Samaria, so let me let me turn this to you.
2: Yeah. So we've talked a lot about you know the market, medical value-based care, price transparency, and then we finished off with advice you have for entrepreneurs and others, and and kind of along those same lines. What is one Book or other resource it can be a website or podcast that you would recommend to others as we part on this podcast
3: i can 't pick one I have to say two uh, so i think I think npr 's How I Built this is a fantastic podcast. If anyone hasn 't found that one yet, find it it 's uh, it's great um, and then uh, actually, the book i 'm kind of finishing up right now is um, is a book on Amazon actually called the everything Store and um, that that has been a fantastic read and um, i mean it 's hard not to look at the founder who 's now the most wealthy man in the world and think, yeah i like to be kind of like that guy, uh, but I just think it 's been really interesting to read about amazon 's focus on low prices, and you know that seems pretty relevant to what we 're doing, trying to help patients find appropriately priced medical services and um, I found that to be a really enlightening read
4: yeah when when we were when we were pretty early on at market Medical and it felt like everything was a giant bite out of the apple, uh, like I was alluding to before, I read uh the hard thing about hard things, and that 's where I started to get my brain wrapped around really it 's not it 's not one giant problem you 're trying to solve it 's a bunch of small problems that you 're trying to to figure and navigate your way through, uh, and so that book was just incredibly helpful to me in just outlining a bunch of real world examples where, uh, the author, um, Horowitz, uh, you know, had to like figure stuff out on the fly and how he did it and he made it through and He didn't die. And and it was, you know, and so, uh, I think that book is really, was, was powerful for me. And I think it'd be really helpful for people looking to start a company and and figure out how to do it.
1: Yeah. For me, the book I seem to come back to over and over again is a, is a pretty new one, but uh, it's called An American Sickness by Elizabeth Rosenthal. So she's a non-practicing physician, the editor-in-chief of Kaiser Health News. And um, she wrote just an incredible book about sort of how we got the healthcare care system um, that we have today. And um, it's a really, really fascinating historical perspective um, of different sort of, you know, subsectors of the system and sort of how they got the incentives they did and how they got the, the sort of Uh, organizational structure they did. And, um, you know, I I think if you're going to try to fix the healthcare system, it's important to sort of, uh, you know, imagine the system we ought to have, but I think it's also important to ground that in sort of how we got where we are today. And um, I've read a lot of books on that topic and hers is just, it's exceptionally well written and easy to get through and, uh, and just, you know, so clear.
2: Great. Thanks so much, Sharif. I've I've actually read that one. It's it's pretty good. Um, So with that, just wanted to take a moment and say thank you, Dane, Lance, and Sharif for your time today. Really great insights here. And it was a pleasure chatting with you.
0: Yeah. Thanks for having us.
3: It was our pleasure.
0: Good. Well, we will have to have a repeat as some time goes by, but thank you, gentlemen. This has been amazing.